So, um, when I went over to Norway this year, um, they asked me to give uh, the lecture that was the sort of groundwork for the uh, course they call Communication and Worldview. She's training uh, Christian communicators, they're a media college, and they train journalists and so on, and they wanted something on the biblical basis for uh, communication of Christianity to people with other views and so on. Uh, and the kind of, um, the classic uh, locus of that kind of study is what Paul does in Athens in Acts chapter 17. So when I found out that we were doing theories of studies in Acts, and that Acts chapter 17 wasn't it, I immediately volunteered to do something on Acts chapter 17. And uh, Matthew and Claire have uh, graciously allowed me to do that, and said, why don't we start off the series in Acts, kind of with this, with a bit of a different week. A kind of masterclass telling people about Christianity. Because, mm. um, uh, as I say, um, uh, one of the um, ways of in- interpreting what Luke is doing in the combination of Luke and Acts, which of course he wrote both, um, is very much a um, communicating the gospel in a persuasive way um, to other people. Uh, and the Acts, uh, he gives a series of um, pictures of particularly the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul in various situations um, giving uh, evangelistic stroke apologetic speeches. I don't really like the distinction that we tend to draw in the church nowadays between evangelism on the one hand and apologetics on the other. It seems to me that in the New Testament they always go um, hand in hand and sort of one wrapped in the other all the time. Um, so, uh, having done that lecture, I then started working on a paper um, that I've been working on uh, recently on this, and I've um, sort of been keeping my PowerPoint up to date with that. But what I'll try and do uh, is take this down a notch from what's on the PowerPoint, because I know we're late in the evening, we've had long days and things. Um, so I'm going to use this as my notes, but I'm, I'm not going to go through word for word what's on the PowerPoint. This is you know, aimed at uh, BA students who are studying this stuff. Um, so let me see if I can kind of. I know. <laughs> let me see if I can. <laughs> yes. See if I can manage uh, uh, that dichotomy as we go through. Um, let me start with a bit of a. a <laughs> let me start with a bit of a modern analogy um, by showing you a, a brief clip from the first Matrix film. Um, so. This is uh, Raphael's uh, painting of St. Paul in Athens, and um, Paul, uh, the Jew, suddenly coming to the the Greek city of Athens, faces a a task, I think, a little bit analogous to that faced by Morpheus, the character of Morpheus in The Matrix, when he's first trying to convince Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, um, that he's not really living in the real world. And uh, Neo is, has got some suspicions that all is not right with reality as he perceives it. He thinks there's something odd going on, and he's, he's followed those intuitions to getting up to the point of meeting Morpheus, and his hopes are going to reveal to him the truth about reality. Um, so it's a little bit like uh, the, uh, the kind of strategy St. Paul actually adopts in his speech in Acts chapter 17, uh, as we'll see later. But let's start off with just this. My sound's probably not very loud but I do have the subtitles up so So Morpheus takes Neo's suspicions, his half glimpsed worries about reality and builds on them to say I'm going to to fill in the blanks for you and is very famously in in Acts in his speech um, Paul builds the whole speech from the basis of uh, an altar that he'd found that was labelled to an unknown god 
that the Greeks had, had set up. And he starts off his speech by saying to them, you've got an inkling that there's something out there that you need to be paying attention to, but that you don't really know about. Well, I'm going to fill in the blanks for you. And he draws them in that way. And he also talks about the way in which um, people are groping around in the dark after God, even though he's all around us and close to us. Uh, and that we need revelation from God to, to fill in the blank for us, and that he's going to proclaim that revelation to them. There's quite a few actual uh, analogies there. Um, so Luke's account of what Paul does in Athens, and particularly this speech that he gives uh, uh, before what's called the Areopagus Council uh, in Athens, it's long been seen as a very important example of um, Christians communicating across culture. Um, Time and time again in in Acts, Luke shows what Paul's normal practice to do is he goes to a new city, he goes into the synagogue in that city, and he argues and debates and discusses with the Jewish people uh, and the Greeks who attend synagogue there uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. But he can do that because those Old Testament Background: Those Old Testament prophecies are common ground with that audience. They understand what he means when he says, well, Jesus is the Messiah, and so on. But when he comes to these um, pagan Greek um, polytheists and uh, different schools of philosophers in, in, in Athens, he doesn't have that common ground with them. If he started standing up in the marketplace in Athens saying, you know, Jesus is, is the Messiah... Everyone would go, I'm a, I'm a what? what? What do you mean? You know? um, so he takes a, a different approach, as we'll see, and he actually builds more on um, links that he can find in their culture. Starts where they are in order to move them to where he is, rather than making them do all the legwork. Uh, as uh, Tony, there we go, picture uh, from Damaris says Luke clearly intends Paul's engagement with his pagan audience in Athens to be a model for his readers um, and one that's got striking relevance to our secular culture in which lots of people don't have any biblical background um, that we could sort of deploy the same method as Paul does in the synagogues uh, I would highlight three um, aspects of wisdom in what Paul does and that's why I call um, this talk apologetics in 3D Um, the wisdom of communicating across spiritualities and I'll talk a little bit about spiritualities um, rather than merely worldviews and I'll go into that that as well and why that's important Uh, secondly the wisdom of judging spiritualities in terms of their truth their goodness and their beauty and with those backgrounds filled in, I'll then uh, go a little sort of guided tour through his speech in Athens. Um, and also uh, the background of, of the wisdom of communicating those judgments um, about truth and goodness and beauty across spiritualities in terms of classical rhetoric, uh, which uh, I think that, at least implicitly, Paul knew, and it, it's quite likely that Paul um, was acquainted with writings like um, Aristotle's book on rhetoric and so on, I think. Um, but nothing particularly in what I'm saying hinges on him having first-hand knowledge of that. So let me just discuss a little bit about spiritualities and worldviews, fill in what those mean, particularly spirituality. It's a term that our culture seems to bandy around with wild abandon. Nobody really knows quite what it means, so I'm going to define it. Um, in a very general way that it would apply to everyone whether they're a Christian or not 
but the basis of the definition I give is a solidly biblical basis. Let's put it like that. Um, spirituality, I suggest, concerns it's about how humans relate to reality. That's what spirituality is about. How do we relate to things, to other people, to the world around us, to whatever we think the ultimate reality is. And, and we relate via our worldview beliefs, our beliefs about what reality is like. Um, those, we have certain attitudes towards what we believe is true that follow on from those beliefs. And because we believe certain things and we have certain attitudes, that leads us to acting in a certain way in the world. So, for example, I as a Christian believe that God exists... Um, that he has a nature whereby he knows everything that happens and that he's loving and that he's told me he wants me to pray to him um, and I have an attitude of receptivity towards God I'm not someone who believes in God and rejects him and runs away like um, the demons that the Bible says believe in God but tremble in fear so I have a positive attitude towards God and because of all that I tend to do things like praying which I wouldn't do if I didn't have the right attitudes and I didn't have the belief that there was God. Great. So you see how those fit together. Um, long terms that have been used in church history for these three levels. Uh, other people have obviously thought this before me. Uh, worldview beliefs, that's to do with orthodoxy. Um, G.K. Chesterton's famous book, Orthodoxy. Um, our attitudes are orthopathy. And our practices also praxi, praxis, what you do, and your actions. Um, so what is the difference between a belief and an attitude? Well, a, a belief is something that I believe to be true about reality. And an attitude is a sort of um, willing or emotional reaction built to that, built really. upon that, yes. So I believe God's there and I either love him or I hate him. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, I either trust him or I reject him and run away from him. Mm. Um, it, it, I can have the same belief but different attitudes, yes. so they're clearly two different things. Um, which, uh, as in James, for example, you can always reduce down to spirituality is composed of faith and works. Faith is beliefs plus attitude, so I would tend to describe faith to people as trust. It's trusting belief. Uh, it's both a matter of the head and the heart together. Uh, and to divorce them from each other uh, is to get an un unchristian view of what faith is. And that faith leads to works, as James talks about in his letter. Um, and actually, they kind of interact with each other uh, in a sort of circular way. So you could draw them in this sort of circular fashion. Um, because I tend to have certain attitudes and, and behave in certain ways, that tends to reinforce my beliefs. Our, our attitudes towards reality would determine what kind of things we would even think about or question, uh, what subjects we would even bother investigating and so on. Yeah. Can I just make a comment, hmm. which may be completely useless, but this is... In psychiatry, mm. when they do cognitive behavioural therapy, yes. basically exactly the same. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I've, I've noticed this as well. It's a very good point that cognitive behavioural therapy um, that gets people to think in, in terms of, um, again, you believe certain things and you react in a certain way 
and, and that makes you feel in a certain way and you behave in a certain way. So um, one classic example, so you see a, a friend of yours walking down the street and they, they apparently don't notice you and they don't talk to you. Um, so you, you, you form a belief, you know, they, they, they ignored me. Um, then you have an attitude towards that. Do you think, oh, well, they must have been really busy or something was on their mind, poor dear? Or do you think, good grief, why did they ignore me? And, and, and uh, that was really rude of them. And because if you're thinking that the latter, then you get really angry about it. And because you're angry about it, you, next time you see them, you tear them off a strip. Uh, and so your beliefs and your attitudes start affecting how you feel and your behavior, and that can have an impact both mentally and sort of psychophysically on yourself and so on. So there's very much an interesting link up there. Um, talking about world views, lots of Christian writers have done quite a lot of work on, on world views and less on spirituality, I think. Uh, but James W. Sire, his classic book, The Universe Next Door, which is a very good read, um, talks about world views as a, a commitment, a fundamental orientation of, of the heart. Um, that can be expressed as a, a story or a set of uh, assumptions about reality that could be true or false. Um, we could hold them consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently. People's worldviews are not always nice, tidily worked out things. Lots of people tend to sort of cherry-pick bits and pieces that, technically speaking, would belong in different worldviews, but they sort of bung them together in their lives and, and because it sort of works for them at some level. Um, and it provides the foundation on which we live and move and have our being, um, to quote Paul in Acts 17, quoting from a Greek writer at the end there. Um, and there are various different people give different sort of schemas, the sort of basic questions that worldviews answer, but we don't need to, to go into those. This is quite an interesting thing, I think. Uh, again, this is from James W. Sy, talking about beliefs. He says you could locate any belief you have on this chart. One axis going from strongly believing to, to very weakly believing something. And the other axis going from having a vague belief to having a very specific belief. So the Athenian who set up the altar to an unknown god might have had a very strong belief that there's probably a god that he doesn't know very much about. But therefore, he would have a very vague belief about what that god was like. By the very nature of what he's doing. So he says that I really think there's something out there that I really don't know a lot about and I'm a bit confused about. And therefore I'm going to do this to kind of cover my back, <laughs> as it were. Um, and again, any belief that we, we have can be charted in that way. Well, if it is a false belief, as opposed to, like, um, <coughs> it, I mean, I know, like, if you try to put Islam on that and map that and people yeah. on the scale of Islam, where you can... Well, the one, something yeah, that's not true. That's right. So there's no axis on this for it being true. So it could be a specific strong belief that's not true. Yes, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so on. So this is not about the truth of the belief, but it's it's really about, um, partly it's about how important is that belief in your worldview and to your spirituality. Okay. Um, if it's a very, if you have a very weak belief uh, about something and it's very vague, then it's unlikely to have much of an impact on your spirituality, mm -hmm. uh, or at least compared to a strong, very specific belief 
um, about God or the world or the nature of humans or, or whatever. It'll, that will have more of an impact, particularly if you've actually you, you've kind of thought it through and it's consciously something that you believe and you've thought through, that rather than something that you've just sort of unthinkingly picked up um, and you're being carried along by. Um, that would be interesting to, to think through. Uh, all in all, I think it shouldn't be too surprising, given Jesus' teaching uh, about the greatest commandment. Uh, and if you look at the different versions of the greatest commandment and the Old Testament scripture that that's referring back to, and I think you can find the same kind of structure pattern in uh, Paul's writing in Colossians 3 as well, um, about loving God with all of your heart, that is your will, your attitudes, with all of your mind, including your worldview therefore, and with all of your strength, that is what you do in the world. Um, so that's where I got this structure from, but I think it's, that's a sort of generalizable structure of any worldview. A specifically Christian spirituality is one where you, you love God and therefore your neighbor with all of your worldview and attitudes and practices, heart, mind and strength. Um, so that's about spirituality and worldviews. A bit of background there. Uh, this is a little bit of background about rhetoric. Um, particularly important here is uh, Aristotle and uh, his uh, book on rhetoric. Uh, he defines rhetoric as the power to observe the persuasiveness of which any particular matter admits and then to communicate that well to an audience. So if you're trying to con- convince people of something, you're a lawyer in court, or you're an evangelist in church, or whatever, you've got to be able to know, what are the persuade... Why is... You know, why am I persuaded that this is something that I should embrace? What's persuasive about X, Y, or Z? And then how can I get other people to, to notice that? <laughs> um, so it's about how to recognise and then communicate persuasiveness. Um, we don't need to go through the quote from Aristotle himself. I will simply jump to saying that he, he classically says there are these three elements to good rhetoric. Um, there's uh, ethos, the, the, the character of the presenter. Um, do they come across as a trustworthy uh, an engaging person that, that you, you know, are they like a used car salesman that you're thinking, oh, I don't know, or do they kind of convince you by their moral character? Pathos, uh, also pathy, you want to start noticing some of the, the linguistic links here, um, the use of emotional appear, appeals or, or showing that something is attractive to you, showing that it's beautiful, um, using a story to, to be convincing, to illustrate points and so on. Um, and finally, and most importantly, of course, logos, uh, a term that the New Testament picks up, John's Gospel, for example, applies to Jesus, um, the use of reasoning to construct an argument. So really good rhetoric would involve um, an intellectually and morally credible source, someone with good ethos, presenting a sound argument, a good logos, in a way that, that ought to evoke a strong uh, emotional response from an audience and uh, bad rhetoric would sort of contravene some or all of all of that uh, as Alistair McGrath uh, what a well known theologian surely that's not the best picture you've got of him <laughs> well that's quite an interesting one in the, <laughs> the mid flow of conversation 
in some of his books on evangelism, he notes that Christians should know a bit about rhetoric, and, and actually uh, Aristotle provides a stimulus and a framework for more effective apologetics, and I agree with him. That's uh, good stuff. Uh, something that, that really uh, enthused me about this subject when I, when, I, when I noticed it, having done a little bit of the background I was doing for another project entirely about rhetoric, was when I read in Paul in Colossians this. Uh, he's talking about evangelism and getting people to pray for him in his evangelism. He says, please pray that I will make the message as clear as possible. When you are with unbelievers, and he starts then going into advice for them, uh, when you're with unbelievers, always make good use of the time. Be pleasant and have, have a good ethos. Be nice. You know, come across well to people. And hold their interest. Don't be all just dry and academic and everything. But hold their interest. Have good, good pathos when you speak the me- message. Choose your words carefully. Your logos carefully. And be ready to give answers. Rational an- answers to anyone who asks questions. A phrase that makes me think he probably knows about 1 Peter 3.15 or vice versa. I'm not quite sure the timing between these two letters. Uh, always be ready to give an answer for the a reason for the hope that is within you. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I suddenly noticed, oh, here's Paul mentioning in his advice about good evangelism exactly the same three elements of good communication that, that Aristotle talks about and in the same order that Aristotle talks about them as well um, which isn't conclusive but it might be suggestive so what depth does ethos go because in this case it could be be pleasant on the surface yes well clearly I think in, in New Testament terms I would be very interesting to look at passages like Galatians where it talks about the fruit of the spirit uh, peace and patience and uh, joy and uh, so on uh, I think all of those kind of having the character of Christ and the, the moral, the fruit of the spirit and the, the regeneration into those, into that character uh, all would be a, a Christian way of unpacking that ethos. But in the Greek world, was it ethos as in coming from the heart? Uh, well, this is, I think, where the whole sort of antagonism between um, what's called the sophists on the rhetoricians and the philosophers and so on and people saying oh you rhetoricians you're just you're just hiring out your services to politicians in order to tr- to teach them how to win arguments mm-hmm. and get power and things but you don't really care about the truth you don't really care about the things that you're teaching you're just teaching this as as a as tools for getting what you want and therefore it's sort of dangerous and immoral um which yes if you do it for those ends is but you can use the same tools for, for good ends in the good way coming coming actually flowing out of your spirituality if you're if using ethos and pathos and logos in your speaking is actions that flow from the right attitudes based upon the right beliefs in Christ Fine. then it's good yeah. yeah if it's just a a selling technique for getting what you want or you know chalking up marks on the bedpost as it were then it's a bad thing yeah um, and Cicero, um, a later uh, Roman uh, writer on rhetoric, who was actually for a while governor of the area um, where Paul came from, Tarsus, from Cilicia. So maybe Paul knew about Cicero as well. Uh, he talks about the eloquent speaker in the forum as the one that 
can speak in such a way as to achieve proof and delight and influence. That is proof, good logos, delight, the emotional persuasiveness, the pathos, uh, and uh, influence, the, the kind of moral uh, character and getting people to change what they do, how they behave. Um, so I started noticing lots of these threes matching up with each other, the three elements, heart, mind, and strength, uh, logos, pathos, and ethos, um, proof, delight, influence, um, the, the classical, trans- what's called the transcendental values of truth and beauty and goodness would relate to those as well. I certainly noticed that all of these things match up with each other uh, across the board. So, that sort of framework background, I'm going to use those tools to analyse what Paul is doing uh, in Acts 17, and I think in a bit more of a rounded way than a lot of commentators do, because a lot of commentators will correctly, in my opinion, note that, okay, isn't it good that what Paul does is he looks for common ground with people he disagrees with, and then he uses nice arguments building upon those common ground to convince them to come to where he is, having started where they are, and that's a kind of good way of going about apologetics and evangelism and so on. And, And yes, it is, but he's not just just talking in terms of their worldview beliefs and having an academic discussion, because he's also saying things like, you're, you've got all these altars to unknown gods and you're behaving in a certain way and you're not behaving in the right way towards God. What you're doing isn't actually what God calls for, and there's judgment and so on. It's about morals uh, as well as about ideas. It's, a, it's actually about... He's got a spirituality and they've got a spirituality and he wants them to shift from their spirituality to his spirituality uh, in that rounded sense. What was the FF mean, by the way? And following. Yeah. Uh, so, from Acts 17, I think this is verse 16. Yeah. yeah. So while Paul was waiting uh, for them, his compatriots in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And I rather like what Peter Kreeft uh, says about idols, because it's not a concept that easily translates into today's world. But I think you can basically say with Kreeft that an idol is anything that's not God, but that's treated as God. If it's not God, but you treat it as God, then it's an idol. Uh, that's uh, fairly simple. And um, Kreeft talks about the way in which you know there are lots of good divine attributes, like um, justice for example, but if you just concentrated on justice that element of something that's good about God's character and you elevate justice to being your God well, then it's become an idol and you're not worshipping God you're just worshipping a very restricted idea uh, of your own making as it were Um, and he talks about the way in which um, since an idol is not God no matter how sincerely or passionately it's treated as God it's bound to break the heart of the worshipper sooner or later. Good motives for idolatry, if you can uh, put some there. Can't remove the objective fact that an idol is an unreality. You can't get blood from a stone or divine joy from non-divine things. Good. Uh, so back to Acts. So Paul uh, reasoned, and I've highlighted that word reasoned there, in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Jews. This, this is his normal practice. Go to the synagogue first, argue with the people that he's got the most common ground with. 
But then it says, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Um, various verses that you could pick up from um, Acts and Paul's letters about Paul's usual practice of arguing, debating, proving, affirming, confirming the, the gospel, uh, and so on. Lots of apologetics is going on in his ministry. So he re- so uh, this also then talks about going to the marketplace with people. This is the marketplace, um, the Agora in Athens, or what's left of it. And there's a rather nice uh, description about it here. Um, the Agora... It started off as an open place of assembly in ancient Greek city-states. Every, every city-state would have an agora, uh, this uh, big sort of open square in the middle of the city. And uh, early in Greek history, freeborn male landowners, who were the citizens, uh, would gather there for military duty or to hear statements of the ruling king or the council of the city. But later the agora served as a marketplace as well, where merchants kept stalls, uh, and shops to sell their goods amid the, the colonnades around the edge of the square. And from this twin function of the agora as a political and commercial space came the two Greek verbs uh, meaning to shop and to speak in public. Uh, so it's a kind of, uh, becomes a, a, over the time a sort of combination of um, the shopping centre the 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 council buildings and um, the university actually if you can imagine that all those sort of rolled up into one um, this is why Paul goes there uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers I'll fill in you in on those in a moment began to debate with him some of them asked what is this babbler trying to say others remarked he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And the intimation here is that they misunderstood what he was saying and they, th- they thought he was advocating two new polytheistic gods. The God Jesus and the God Resurrection. <laughs> you see. Some of the idea of foreign gods. Yes. Well, they're not the ones endorsed by the city-state, you see. They don't have power influence here. That, that's right. Building might as well build an altar for <laughs> Yes. That's just insurance. That's right, insurance policy. <laughs> um, Epicureanism, um, it's basically an early form of materialism. Um, think Bertrand Russell in contemporary terms, or Richard Dawkins. Um, Stoics, a little bit harder to, to describe in modern terms, but they, they've got a sort of spirituality or philosophy that's a bit like Buddhism or pantheistic thinking um, they recognise the, the, the imminence of God and rationality in the universe but they don't have any idea of God's transcendence beyond the universe um, but it's from the Stoics for example that we get the use in the New Testament of the, of the term logos to mean the divine rationality um, the name Stoic actually derives from the porch the Stoa Poikilai uh, in the Agora, in that market square in Athens, uh, which was one of the colonnade spaces that was actually decorated with mural paintings, and the members of this school of philosophy congregated there and held their lectures there. So this really was the you know the marketplace and the university and the city council buildings all rolled into one. And so this is why Paul going around the marketplace 
falls in to debate with these philosophers who are there having their lectures in this colonnade uh, and gets pulled into discussion and they say, well, come to our philosophical society, stroke the council that decides upon whether or not the city-state is going to allow foreign gods to be worshipped here um, and tell us what you're going on about. So they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, Uh, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. Uh, And Luke interjects the point that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. So this agora is a bit like OK Magazine as well. Um, And various classical writers pass very similar comments to to Luke's there, interestingly. Um, the Areopagus, here's a photo, in Greek, pagos means big piece of rock. Um, there's a big piece of rock, this is the Areopagos. Uh, in Rome, Roman it's called uh, in uh, Mars Hill. And uh, I don't think we're sure whether the council actually met on the rock or sort of by the rock, as it were. But this is the, the rock that the council was named after, and there's even some debate as to whether the council was meeting there or elsewhere in the, in the city at this stage. Um, but that's not really germane. A good description of what's going on here uh, from uh, American philosopher John Mark Reynolds, I rather like this, sets it in its kind of historical context really well. Uh, he says, in between the great, the Acropolis, you know about the Acropolis building on the, on the hill, the temple with all the colonnades on it, and the marketplace, the Agora, stood a small hill which the ancient Athenians called the Areopagus. It had served from deepest antiquity as an Athenian court. On the hill of the Areopagus, the Archons, the members of the court, met, and even under the democracy they retained some power, especially over murder and sacrilege, religious cases. By the time of Paul, it was a favourite meeting place for intellectuals, where the judgments were more over ideas than men. So St. Paul would have walked through the marketplace where philosophy was born, to the hill where religious judgments had traditionally been made, in the shadow of the greatest temple of the religion of Homer and of Delphi. Athens was still, symbolically, one of the great centres of the ancient paganism, and as a symbol had no equal, for it contained great icons of both pagan religion and pagan philosophy. And there's even some indications subtly in the, in the text um, that Luke might be kind of portraying or drawing a bit of an analogy between Paul and the Greek philosopher Socrates. And he might, to, his, to Greek audiences, be portraying Paul as a, a newer and better um, Socrates. Socrates, who had been accused several hundred years earlier of, of worshipping um, gods other than endorsed by the state, and had been um, put to the death sentence for worshipping non-state-endorsed deities. Um, H. Wayne House says, it's this council before him, Socrates, also appeared and was sentenced to death for introducing the Athenians to strange deities. And Luke may even be attempting to draw some parallel between Socrates and Paul, but that, that hinges on various subtle points of the text, which we needn't really go into. Uh, and so then we get this famous speech that he makes before this council of, of philosophers and religious judges. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. And the word translated religious there is a deliberately ambiguous word that could be positive or could be negative. It could be sort of negatively saying you're very superstitious. Or it could be positively saying you're very religious and pious. Uh, and there's a sort of deliberate ambiguity there, I think. 
Um, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, he really investigated them, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an Unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one blood he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he's not far from any one of us. And then he quotes, uh, For in him we live and move and have our being. That's from a Cretan philosopher, Epimenides. And then he says, As some of your own poets have said, and another quote, We are his offspring, from the Stoic philosopher Aratus. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. He's saying humans themselves are the, the icons of God, as it were. We are the representation of God on earth. So it's stupid to make representations of God and then worship them and actually you don't want to worship people what you want to do is worship God you know Um, in the past God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead Um, and there he goes on to the very point that they started at misunderstanding him Um, now of course this is a sort of likely to be a condensed summary of what he said uh, not a word for word transcription uh, this is the sort of edited highlights the general themes and structure of what he said and actually if you judge the structure of what he said by for example the advice that Aristotle in the rhetoric gives on how you construct a speech it would seem that he gets cut off before the end of the speech, as lots of commentators have said, when he mentions about the resurrection, there's a whole furore uh, in the in the council, um, because the idea of someone being resurrected is a complete anathema to the Greeks. And actually at the founding of the, uh, the Acropolis, um, there's a, a famous... Um, line that says about how stupid it is to think that anybody could come back from the dead um, and be resurrected. So um, it doesn't meet with uh, a great deal of approval from the audience, but this is his kind of crowning proof uh, of his argument, actually the resurrection. So I'm sure that he would have gone into people with you know, his eyewitness um, experience of that and so on. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered and you can see why in their cultural background. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And that Paul Paul left the council. And Luke uh, notes, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed, and among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus Council, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. That's why Damaris is called Damaris, yes. Um, So, again, you get the, the, the three results that you can get when you try and communicate the gospel some people dismiss it and go away other people they're not convinced but they're prepared to think about it more and hear more and so on you've interested them enough that they they kind of okay well I'll I'll stick with this for a bit you know and other people become become converts that's the only three reactions you can get isn't it 
so I will then try and abstract, given that background and that analysis, some general advice from Paul. Um, this is a sort of suggested reconstruction, given that background and that analysis of, of Paul's missionary model, as it were, as it's presented by Luke in Acts. Um, it's, to use the buzzword, holistic or three-dimensional um, approach to persuasively communicating the gospel and it involves comparing and contrasting spiritualities not just worldviews not just what people believe but their whole kind of way of life in terms of their objective truth and beauty and goodness Um, and it seeks to convince interested parties to embrace the spirituality of the way as Christianity was originally called based upon its superior merits in all three categories um, there can be a tendency and in apologetics I know this myself certainly to focus on trying to convince people that Christianity is true um, which is correct and all well and good but Christianity you know God is a God not just of truth although he is a God of truth but he is also the most beautiful being in reality the most beautiful being that there could be and God is good God is love God is attractive Christ is uh, attractive both morally and in terms of character and the whole kind of kingdom way of life and everything Um, and you know all of that's only worth believing and getting involved in because it is true (laughs) and there's a relationship between truth and goodness and beauty but um, I, I think we often can do ourselves down if we ignore in trying to communicate to the world what we've got if we ignore those dimensions beyond just trying to convince people oh, here's, here's a view of the world that's true um, actually here's a view of the world that's true and that she's good and which is beautiful and which is attractive um, when understood correctly you know um, so I define apologetics more kind of broadly uh, as practiced by Paul in Athens in this way. It's the art of persuasively communicating and advocating Christian spirituality, and at the heart of it, communicating Christ, because he's at the heart of Christian spirituality. Um, doing that across spiritualities, not just across worldviews, uh, and communicating it as being objectively true and beautiful and good. And doing that through the responsible use of rhetoric, using good rhetoric, which matches up to those those threes um, that we saw all the way through. When just to interrupt, mm. used objectively true mm. on these objective with respect to what? Um, I mean, objective in the sense that it doesn't depend upon what you believe or feel or think or decide. Right. Um, so to say uh, as we were saying about that that graph you know someone could have a very strong very specific belief in um, uh, whatever uh, and that belief could be false in zombies yeah okay good example thank you I've got a very strong and specific belief about zombies 
Um, but that doesn't mean that there are zombies, because whether or, you know, whether or not my belief is true or not depends upon whether or not there actually are zombies. It doesn't depend upon how much I believe it, or how strongly I believe it, or how worked out my, consistent my belief is. Or it just depends upon whether or not there actually are zombies. Okay. <laughs> and I think it's... Right back to first principles. Right back to first principles. And it's not, that doesn't just go for truth... That goes for beliefs about what is what it's true to say is good or bad. You know um, that it is uh, a bad thing to torture young children just because you enjoy it. If you do, let's hope you don't. Let's say you did. That that is a bad thing to do doesn't depend upon you disliking it because you might actually be in the terrible situation of being someone who likes it but it's still bad do um, so, so it's independent of or the fact that your society says yes you know murdering all the Jews would be a jolly good thing to do our entire you know we've all decided that that's the right thing to do but wrong you know uh, and I think the same goes and has to go within a Christian worldview for saying things like rainbows are beautiful did he not have the same problem with relativism in this situation as we would now when applying this um, that's an interesting question um, certainly no more uh, of a difficulty the, the, the Epicureans were basically hedonists who said that the whole purpose of life is, is physical sensual pleasure although you have to be sensible about not ruining yourself by getting too much too quick or sometimes you have to um, not have immediate gratification in order to have more gratification long term and so on so it's not just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die yeah. it's well I better pace myself so that I can enjoy drinking and being merry over a long time and so on um, but <laughs> so they have a very very specific and I would say from Christian viewpoint wrong idea about what the meaning and purpose of life and about how you choose make your choices and so on but they're not saying well that's right for you but not right for me they're saying no this is what the meaning and purpose of life is this is how you should live yeah so <laughs> they're not sort of moral relativists uh, about that they've just got a, a different moral framework which they think is yes. correct um, I'm not so sure about the, the Stoics um, their idea is, is a more sort of Buddhist you have to sort of become peaceful and quietist with the way that reality is and just sort of go with the flow and don't fight it um, so more like the kind who could then reply to Paul well it's alright if it floats your boat yes maybe yes I don't really know enough to answer your question I'm, I'm afraid I'm, yeah um, nice finishing quote from uh, Francis Schaeffer whose thought ties up nicely with quite a lot of this um, he says the purpose of apologetics is not just to win an argument or a discussion but the people with whom we are in contact may become Christians and then live under the lordship of Christ in the whole spectrum of life. We're not just trying to change people's beliefs about reality so that they believe the right things about the Nicene Creed being true, you know. We're trying to make fellow members of God's kingdom who live out the whole rounded reality that, that God calls us to in that kingdom um, as described by Jesus in the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with everything that you are 
your, not just your beliefs, but your beliefs, not just your beliefs, your attitudes, your heart, your will, your actions, your, you know, everything, and to love your neighbour as yourself in that context. Um, so that's a very rounded view, but, but all of that roundedness, there's a need to defend that as all being true and good and beautiful against people who would say that's a terrible way to live don't Christians do terrible things isn't that a terrible attitude to have towards sex isn't that a really um, you know uh, not only do we get attacked for believing false things we get attacked uh, as has become perhaps more apparent with the new atheist movement we get attacked for being immoral because isn't it immoral for you to have faith when that means you know not living up to your rational obligations and just believing things against the evidence and um, that leads that leads to people easily being radicalized and blowing other people up because they disagree with them and that's immoral and it's a bad way of you know you shouldn't be allowed to let your christian beliefs influence what you do in the public sphere in politics and things because that's wrong and um, that's a bad way of life that you're engaging in and so on um, so I think particularly in today's context it's important to recapture the idea that apologetic stroke evangelism don't separate them but it's this whole rounded life that we're called to and to call other people into and that doing that well that's apologetics you know. <laughs> and Paul gives us a very good model and Luke's clearly presenting that as a model I think um, for how to do it in a situation that actually is very similar to the one that we face today. Today we face materialists on the one hand and we face people who are sort of more kind of pantheistic new agey uh, on the other people who pick and choose between their worldviews. Paul very much picks up on the way in which although the the Stoics and the Epicureans didn't really agree with the state polytheism they come, ac- come to an accommodation with it. They very much reinterpreted what the man in the street would have meant by worshipping Pallas Athena or Zeus or whatever within their different world views. Um, so they were sort of allowing people to sort of mix and match. and So all of those sort of discussions are, are very fresh, uh, really. Um, so... Paul, in terms of ethos, shows a very deep interest in and understanding of the culture and worldviews and spirituality of the people he's communicating with. Um, he respects culture as an expression of the fallen uh, image of God in man. You know, there's good things and bad things about culture, just as there are about people, because culture reflects people. Um, but he respects it, but that doesn't mean he endorses everything about it. He's very careful to go through and endorse the things that he thinks are true and good and beautiful in it, and to critique the things that he thinks are not true, are ugly, are evil in it. Um, in terms of pathos, he, he latches into their religious piety, their fear, their sort of insurance policy on the, the altar to the unknown God and so on. He exploits points of agreement and disagreements between these different schools. So he kind of really knows and exploits the sort of tensions that are running under the ground between these people. Um, he's into their sort of social um, interactions with each other, I think. And in terms of Logos, he critiques their philosophical theology, their idea about what God's like. He discusses historical revelation. He talks about evidence for Jesus' resurrection and so on. Um, so he's got the whole rounded package um, draws them in and really gives them the rounded package and uh, just then saying well today we need to basically do the same thing there we go
think it's intriguing that we're allowed to use emotional arguments. Because I tend to regard them as defeatist and suspicious and loathing. Yeah. I don't like the idea of using someone's emotions to try and win an argument. Hmm. I have no problem with that. We're not, we're not just trying to win the argument. No. We're trying to win the person. But yes. Is it, is it the... mm. <laughs> Come on, you can do it. You can get a sentence out. Their emotions are part of them as well. I don't see mm. people, you know, very afraid of, of doing sort of the emotional side of things, but that is still part of that person. Mm. And those emotions have come from their experiences in their life and yeah. There were beliefs. And I think that the two points that, that I would want to make there is well, that well done. <laughs> well done. Uh, I, we're not advocating s- just making appeals to people's emotions or their, their attitudes about things. Not, not just saying to people, here's a story that's attractive. Mm. Because it's, it's all those three elements have to go together and particularly within the Aristotle tradition and so on, I think the, the, the argument is the most basic, but you, you, you illustrate your argument in an appealing way and you point to the genuinely appealing aspects of the reality that you're pointing to. You point to the character of Christ and you say, what an amazing, appealing guy this is. Look at the way that he's behaving and acting. Isn't that an... You know, he, he just is a charismatic, attractive guy when you meet him in the pages of scripture you don't want to be hoodwinked and believe in someone just because you find them attractive and charismatic if if there's reason to think that they're not real they're not true but equally it would be it would be shortchanging people just to focus on the oh this is all very intellectual stuff this christianity it's all about believing things that are that are true and that's it you know um, and also, I think it, it's quite tricky when you start thinking about it to really make hard and fast distinctions between um, intellectual, rational considerations and emotional considerations. When you start talking about Matthew's favourite subject of, of basic beliefs and so on, if I say to you, "Do you think it's you know a ro- would you agree with me that it's wrong to torture little babies just for the fun of it?" You would go. Yes. yes. Now, in order to in order to arrive at that, yes, did you work through a long syllogistic argument in your mind, or did you just have a sort of emotional gut reaction that just sort of told you that that would be wrong? Yes. You, you just have sort of a feeling of. I don't have you to know, work hard on that. Yeah. No, as far as I'm concerned, it's so, wrong. It automatically yeah. comes oh, out wrong. You have to hype up your emotions to get you to respond that way. No, I didn't. Or well, I could. I could really. You did. And if I had a, to struggle with an audience, there'd be some audiences, particularly if they're well into moral relativism and things, that I might have to tell a few stories and so on and ramp up to get that. But I think that reaction, your belief there about morality, and that it's objectively wrong to do that, just based upon the fact that you kind of have a, what we can say in inverted commas, a feeling, is actually perfectly rational. The, the, the onus of proof, at the very least, the burden of proof would be on the person who wanted to say, yeah, I know it seems like that would be wrong, and you all kind of feel that that would be wrong, but let me try and explain to you and convince you why actually I think it's not. Does and they'd have a heck of an uphill task, I can tell you, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So do you say... is that's that's not rational 
just because it's not an argument or a, you know that's a, a rational insight, but one that we know about just because we kind of feel in a certain way, and that's perfectly reasonable to behave on that basis. So, and actually, even though I'm sort of just distinguishing for the sake of clarity between these things. Um, it's very difficult actually to draw hard and fast walls and say you know this is intelligence and rationality and this is the sort of emo- emotional affective part of our character and and this is to do with behavior and <laughs> yeah 